0: took COVID uh, to allow that to happen, but uh, I'm really glad to be with you nonetheless. And if you have a a Bible open in front of you, I'd encourage you to keep Mark 5 open. Uh, And if you you do, you'll see that the passage we're looking at this morning starts with Jesus getting on a boat, having crossed to the other side of a lake. Uh, I obviously crossed the Tay to come over here this morning. We see Jesus crossing uh, an even more uh, exciting body of water than that. And we see him crossing back over because we're diving into a section of Mark's Gospel. It's this mini-section which runs from the end of chapter 4 up to the end of chapter 5. And it's a little mini-section in which we see Jesus running up against three pretty hopeless situations. These are familiar stories to us. Hopeless case number one is this furious storm at sea which makes Jesus' disciples fear for their lives at the end of chapter 4. Then the first half of chapter 5, we see hopeless case number 2 a man who's possessed by a legion of demons and living among the tombs. So in Mark 5, verse 21, when Jesus gets out of the boat, it's because this last hopeless case was found during his first journey into Gentile territory outside of Israel. Not much further away than St. Andrew's is from Dundee geographically, but spiritually distant from God, where there was no one who knew the God of Israel, Jesus has just come back from there. And even, even while there, even while on spiritual away territory, Jesus demonstrated that God's kingdom grows even there. And that Jesus himself is the king with authority in the kingdom of God. But while in the garrisons, even though he performed a very dramatic, life-changing exorcism of demons, he was asked to leave very swiftly. And so this morning we read about the return of the king, the return of King Jesus back to home turf, back in Israel, and where his reputation has already been growing. That's why we see this great crowd gathering to meet him off the boat. But we also see from this setup in verses 21 to 24, that Jesus is once again greeted immediately by another hopeless case. Whereas in the first half of chapter 5, it was a demon-possessed man who fell at Jesus' feet as soon as he saw him. Here, it's someone very different. Here, it's a member of the Jewish ruling elite who does the same thing. He falls at the feet of Jesus, but for a very different reason. We read his anguished words, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. His circumstances are very different from the demon-possessed man, but we see here that he is every bit as hopeless as that demon-possessed man. So two chapters, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 5, four totally hopeless situations, but what we'll see this morning is that when Jesus comes up against hopelessness, Jesus wins. And Mark's aim in this whole section is to demonstrate that Jesus' identity is that he is God's king, God's king with real authority, and also to draw the reader, therefore, to respond rightly to the king by having faith in and following him. And so to that end, we're going to look at this passage together under two headings. Recognize the king and respond to the king. So, first of all, recognize the king, And we recognize his kingship by knowing, first of all, that he has authority over sickness. So we've met hopeless case number one in this story, but we'll revisit Jairus slightly later. But it's on the way to Jairus' house that Jesus encounters another hopeless case, hopeless case number two. As we read from the second half of verse 24, A great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. So the, the suffering of this woman is right there and easy to see on the face of it. She's had this menstrual hemorrhage for 12 years. And it's obvious enough that that will mean a lot of pain and discomfort. And going through all of that for 12 years is pretty bleak. That will be true in any time or place. But then we remember the context of where this woman is. And we realize that for her, it's even worse. Living in this society where menstrual bleeding was considered unclean means that as well as all the physical suffering and distress, for the last 12 years, this woman's life has been one of ostracization and stigma. Cut off from community and friendship and fellowship. Not unlike the leper that we meet in Mark, all the way back in chapter 1. I think we all know it's a pretty awful thing to be unwell, especially if that's a chronic thing. I just imagine going through an unending chronic illness, one which makes you very uncomfortable and, and, and in pain. And going through that in a way in which everyone you love, everyone you know, wants to stay as far away from you as possible. Well, that's the kind of hopeless situation that this woman finds herself in. But what's more, as the text itself draws out here, she's been left penniless, having spent everything she has trying to find a cure. Twelve years of moving from one doctor to the next, from the elite of the medical establishment to home remedies, to any charlatan or quack promising a miracle cure, thinking, maybe, maybe this time this will work. But of course it hasn't. And actually, we read that she's only grown worse in spite of all these medical interventions. It's not unlike the demon possessed man that we meet in the earlier part of Mark chapter 5, in that this woman has a problem that absolutely nobody can help her with. And that makes what follows all the more dramatic. We tend to let stories like this wash over us because we're so familiar with them, but. She's completely hopeless, completely void of any cure or help. And then we read verse 27. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. You know, I once had a a very mild, persistent health problem. It went undiagnosed for 18 months or so until my doctor finally got to the bottom of it and all I needed to do was take a couple of tablets. And I remember the first day of waking up when those tablets had worked and it was amazing. I felt like a completely different person. I suddenly realised that for a year and a half I'd been waking up every morning feeling uncomfortable and in pain and all of a sudden I wasn't. And it was like a new lease on life. And so we can only imagine how this woman must have been feeling in this moment. Uh, Years and years and years of chasing a cure that couldn't be found, and yet the very second, the very second she reaches out and touches Jesus' clothes, she's cured instantly. In an instant, she's gone from hopeless, helpless, and cut off from the community to healed and restored the next. And yet, as we see a few times in this section of Mark, if we were to read the whole thing, the first recorded response to this miraculous, this delightful thing is unexpected fear. Verse 30, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Uh, Just notice there, the the utter perception, the utter control of Jesus. Uh, People are pressing in around him on every side. So when he says, someone touched me, his disciples are like, well, yeah, no kidding, Jesus. Just look around you. Of course someone touched you. But Jesus knows exactly what's happened. And he wants to speak to the person whom he knows he's just healed. And now we imagine what must be going through this woman's head in that moment. We can picture that she's become accustomed to a life of stigma and shame, of being almost literally avoided like the plague. And now, having tried to very discreetly and anonymously reach out to someone she knows to be a holy man, that very same man is now turning around in the crowd and looking for her. Just like Jairus earlier, she ends up falling down before jesus but rather than out of desperate pleading she's falling down in trembling fear of course she's afraid she's probably afraid because she's expecting to experience admonishment and anger from jesus how dare you touch me unclean woman probably the kind of reaction she'd be used to over the last 12 years and so imagine her full of fear, expecting rebuke, and imagine then the relief that must flood through her when the very first word she hears out of Jesus' mouth is daughter. His response is so kind, so compassionate, so full of dignity and generosity, things that she would have been so unused to at this point in her life. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Of your disease. It's an amazing reversal of fortunes for this poor woman. She's been outcast and derided, now she's accepted and valued. She's been ostracized and maligned, but Jesus treats her with dignity and sends her off in peace, restored to fellowship with her community. And even more fundamentally than that, she's been living without hope. And she goes away with something even greater. A real and tangible end to her suffering. Once again, when Jesus comes up against hopelessness, Jesus wins. So we recognize the king in that he has authority over sickness. We recognize the king as well in that he has authority over death. That's the potential sting in the tail here. While all of this has been taking place with this woman... Jairus' daughter has been on her sickbed, and as this scene is taking place, news comes through that the worst has happened. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James, and John the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Uh, I don't know about you, but one of my pet peeves in life is when you're in a rush, but the people you're with insist on stopping. We probably all have a friend or maybe even a spouse a bit like this, someone who's always bumping into people they know and wanting to stop for a chat or insisting on grabbing a coffee or popping into a shop and making us late. It doesn't matter how close you are to the dinner reservation or the pre-existing appointment. They just have to veer off course a bit. It's really irritating when we're delayed. But of course, the delay for Jairus here isn't just irritating. It's devastating. While he's been held up by the crowd and and taking extra time to speak to this woman, Jairus' daughter has died. And so I think the messengers have got it right when they come to him, haven't they? As they break the news, look, Jairus, this, this man can't help you anymore. Why not just let the nice teacher get on with his day and let's go back to your family? And I wonder if... Maybe they're even quietly wondering to themselves why Jairus has wasted these last precious moments when he might have been by his daughter's side holding her hand. Instead, he's been off on this fool's errand, chasing down a faith healer who doesn't seem the least bit interested in helping out. And so that will make what Jesus says next all the more shocking. Where Jesus could have taken this opportunity to express his condolences to apologize and to say to Jairus, Jairus, your daughter will live on in our hearts forever. Or at least, Jairus, your daughter, she's passed on into an eternal sleep so you can take great comfort in knowing that she's at peace. Say something like that, just in an attempt to offer this bereaved father just a a little crumb of comfort. Instead, what he says would be deeply insensitive, maybe even cruel do not fear only believe how cruel is that or when he actually comes face to face with a grieving household why make a commotion the child is not dead she's merely sleeping if you or i said that in a house of mourning and pain we'd be asked to leave and rightly so it's no wonder the people laugh here it's not because jesus has just cracked a really hilarious joke they know the girl is dead They're well into the formal mourning customs by now. And so when they hear this man suggesting that she's just asleep, they respond with a scornful laugh of derision. How dare he say something like that? How insensitive, how cruel. But of course, Jesus isn't like you or like me. Because Jesus is the king with authority. Remember, when Jesus comes up against hopelessness, Jesus wins and here when he comes up against even death itself jesus still wins as we read from verse 40 he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was taking her by the hand he said to her talitha kumi which means little girl i say to you arise and immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I see that word immediately comes up a lot in Mark. This is how much authority Jesus has. When he speaks, the wind and the waves listen. When he speaks, the demons tremble and obey. When he commands someone to get up, not even death can hold that person back. And all this is because, once again, we are seeing here that Jesus is the king with authority. We recognize our king and take heart. I mentioned those other hopeless cases earlier, in which Jesus shows his authority over nature and over evil spirits and demons. But actually, when we think about it a little more, in all of those stories, this whole section is really just a sign of what's going on here at the very end. When the storm at sea comes, Jesus' disciples say, Don't you care that we're dying? The man with the legion of demons is living among the tombs. It's as if he's dead. The bleeding woman is devoid of hope and cut off in the world around her. It's as if she's dead. All of these stories are demonstrating Jesus' kingly authority, supremely pointing towards his authority over the ultimate effect of our sin and rejection of God, his authority over death itself and so as we recognize our king in this passage this morning that's what we're being drawn to see clearly yes jesus is a compassionate king reaching out to the suffering and the helpless and treating them with kindness yes he's the glorious king bringing hope to situations where hope seems lost But what's even more than that, Jesus is the conquering king. The king with authority over even death. It's another one of those things that we talk about so much in the Christian life that it's easy to let it wash over us. So it's helpful to pause for just a minute and say to ourselves, isn't that amazing? Following Jesus, it's not joining a religious club. It's not following a set of rules. It's not adopting a set of moral principles. No, following Jesus is knowing and walking with the king who triumphs over even the most dreadful despair and hopelessness. Following Jesus is knowing the one who stares death itself straight in the face and unlike anyone else who's ever lived, makes death itself blink. That's brilliant news for all of us this morning. This last part of Mark 5 is a reminder for us that a world without death, it's not a pipe dream or an illusion, it's a person. And it's a really wonderful thing to recognize that. But again, we're being drawn to do more than just recognize that. Seeing, recognizing that Jesus is the king means we need to decide how we'll respond to him. And that's our second point. We recognize our king and we're being drawn to respond to the king. I mentioned to the children earlier, but something that we see throughout these stories is that there are two reactions to Jesus, fear or faith. And we see them both come up again here. First of all, do not fear. As we've seen, there's fear in both the main characters that we meet here. There's fear in the woman's trembling response to Jesus, fear of reprisal and rebuke, fear of being seen and having to give an account of herself to a holy God. And of course, we see fear in Jairus too, naturally, rightly fearful over his daughter, fearful over the ultimate end of sin, death itself. And so in a sense, the fear that we see in this passage is only natural and right. After all, what other response could be more appropriate in the face of death or in the face of a holy and just God? I'm sure that in a congregation of this size, we, if we were to sit together and list all of the hard things in life that we're facing even this week, all the things that are causing us anxiety, causing us Fear. We'd be here for quite a while. Well, for all of us who are feeling fearful this morning, let me then draw us all to gaze together at our king. Because the revolutionary message at the heart of the Christian faith is in some ways summed up by the Christmas angel, do not be afraid. Or as Jesus says in this passage, do not fear. As we've just been thinking about, even death itself has lost its sting if we know and follow the one who conquers death. Encountering a holy God should make us fearful because we fall so far short of his majesty, of his holiness in all of our sin. But Jesus conquers sin too. So don't let fear drive you away. Do not fear. Instead, only believe. Only have faith we see that as well in both Jairus and the woman not just fear but faith faith and belief which are commended and commanded by Jesus himself Jairus has faith enough to come and find Jesus and so Jesus encourages him to not fear but to believe to keep active in the faith which drew him out to meet Jesus at the boat in the first place and then similarly, with the healed woman, if the crowd pressing in on Jesus at every side was so close to him that, he was, that they were touching him, why isn't this section of Mark's gospel entitled Jesus Heals Jairus' Daughter and the Dozens of People Who Touched Him in the Crowd? Well, the answer is faith. It wasn't magic clothes that made the woman well. No, the text makes it very clear Jesus himself makes it very clear that it was faith. Your faith has made you well. And so in Jesus' interactions with both of these characters, the reader is is, uh, being driven to respond rightly to Jesus. Do not fear. Believe. Have faith. And so that's the major application for us this morning. If you're here this morning as someone who's not yet a Christian, let me invite you to consider whether you could, whether you can, whether you will put your faith in Jesus, the one who conquers even death. I'm aware that uh, if this is all new to you or if it's your first time coming to a church, that might feel like a bit too much too soon, and that's absolutely fine. But please do keep coming back here to St. Peter's and exploring this more. If we've seen nothing else this morning, we've at least seen that Jesus is someone who's worth looking into. But if we're already here this morning as people who've been following Jesus, well, this passage strengthens us in our faith as we recognize our King. Faith doesn't mean refusing to accept the facts and pretending that everything is fine. No, faith means walking with and clinging to the Lord Jesus even in the face of the things which make us fearful. Uh, Over the last while, I've been reading a book by an American church leader. It's about how to face suffering and tragedy in the Christian life. And he recounts the story of how his worst nightmare came true when he lost his young son very suddenly and unexpectedly in the night. He describes the moment that his wife called him with the news. He writes, Here was the point of departure between God and me. Here was that moment when my faith would crumble. In my imagination of doom, here was when I would curse God, resign from ministry, and pursue a life of self-interest as a bitter, faithless man. But the Lord put a word in my mouth that surprised me. When my wife delivered the tragic news, I said to her, Lauren, Christ is risen from the dead. God is good. This doesn't change that fact. God gave me faith and hope while I stood squarely in the middle of my worst. I'm not suggesting that faith like that is easy. It's not flippant, and it certainly doesn't make everything okay. But faith like that is real. Faith in Jesus means real hope. Real hope in a Lord that we can cling to even in the middle of our worst. And so whatever our worst may be this morning, however devoid of hope we might feel, Even if we find ourselves or people very dear to us facing death itself. Well, we know a king who conquers. So we rejoice in him. We delight in him. Brothers and sisters, we have faith in him. Even as we feel the real pain of life in a fallen and broken world. We grieve, but we grieve as those who have hope. Hope in a king who will one day usher in a glorious kingdom forever. A place where there will be no more crying, nor mourning, nor pain, for death is no more. A place where every tear will be wiped away. That's the ultimate conquering victory that our glorious King Jesus has won for us. That's the glorious truth that sustains us, gives us real life-giving hope in our most profound moments of joy and in our times of deepest darkness and pain. So as we close this morning, let's not go out merely recognizing our king in this story, but let's go out responding rightly, rejoicing in our king, strengthened to walk with him in real faith, whatever we find ourselves walking out into this week. Let's pray together as we close. God, our Father, we thank you that in this passage we recognize our King, we see the great tenderness and compassion and authority of Jesus, and we see the real life-changing, life-giving hope that only he can bring because he's the King who has conquered sin, the King who has conquered death. And so we pray that as well as recognizing him, you would help us to respond this morning in real faith. We pray that knowing Jesus has conquered, would sustain us by our spirit today, this week, all our days, In knowing that even as we face up to the worst things of this world, we do so safe in the hands of the King who has conquered. And so we pray that you would sustain us and strengthen us. We pray that you would be glorified in us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're now going to stand and sing again. Uh, Jesus is a glorious king, one of magnificent, marvelous, and matchless love. So let's stand and sing his praises together.